Chinese officials had earlier suggested that the timing of the visit was inopportune. Christopher was scheduled to arrive the day of the opening of the annual session of China's legislature, the National People's Congress. The presence of an American Secretary of State challenging the Chinese government on human rights issues promised either to overshadow the body's deliberations or to tempt Chinese officials to take the offensive to prove their imperviousness to outside pressure. It was, Christopher later conceded, a perfect forum for them to demonstrate that they intended to stand up to America. And so they did. The result was one of the most pointedly hostile diplomatic encounters since the U.S.-China rapprochement. Lord, who accompanied Christopher, described Christopher's session with Li Peng as the most brutal diplomatic meeting he'd ever attended. And he had been at my side during all the negotiations with the North Vietnamese. Christopher related in his memoirs the reaction of Li Peng, who held that China's human rights policy was none of our business, noting that the United States had plenty of human rights problems of its own that needed attention. To ensure that I had not failed to appreciate the depth of their unhappiness, the Chinese abruptly canceled my meeting later in the day with President Jiang Zemin. These tensions, which seemed to undo two decades of creative China policy, led to a split in the administration between the economic departments and the political departments charged with pressing the human rights issues. Faced with Chinese resistance and American domestic pressures from companies doing business in China, the administration began to find itself in the demeaning position of pleading with Beijing in the final weeks before the MFN deadline to make enough modest concessions to justify extending MFN. Shortly after Christopher's return, and with the self-imposed deadline for MFN renewal at hand, the administration quietly abandoned its policy of conditionality. On May 26, 1994, Clinton announced that the policy's usefulness had been exhausted and that China's MFN status would be extended for another year, essentially without conditions. He pledged to pursue human rights progress by other means, such as support for NGOs in China and encouraging best business practices. Clinton, it must be repeated, throughout had every intention to support the policies that had sustained relations with China for five administrations of both parties. But as a recently elected president, he was also sensitive to domestic American opinion, more so than to the intangibles of the Chinese approach to foreign policy. He put forward conditionality out of conviction, and, above all, because he sought to protect China policy from the swelling congressional onslaught that was attempting to deny MFN to China altogether. Clinton believed that the Chinese owed the U.S. administration human rights concessions in return for restoring high-level contacts and putting forward MFN. But the Chinese considered that they were entitled to the same unconditional high-level contacts and trade terms extended to them by all other nations. They did not view the removal of a unilateral threat as a concession, and they were extraordinarily touchy regarding any hint of intervention in their domestic affairs. So long as human rights remained the principal subject of the Sino-American dialogue, deadlock was inevitable. This experience should be studied carefully by advocates of a confrontational policy in our day. During the remainder of his first term, Clinton toned down the confrontational tactics 
and emphasized constructive engagement. Lord assembled America's Asian ambassadors in Hawaii to discuss a comprehensive Asia policy, balancing the administration's human rights goals with its geopolitical imperatives. Beijing committed itself to renewed dialogue, essential for the success of China's reform program and membership in the WTO. Clinton, as George H.W. Bush had before him, sympathized with the concerns of the advocates for democratic change and human rights, but, like all his predecessors and successors, he came to appreciate the strength of Chinese leaders' convictions and their tenacity in the face of public challenge. Relations between China and the United States rapidly mended. A long-sought visit by Zhang to Washington took place in 1997 and was reciprocated by an eight-day visit by Clinton to Beijing in 1998. Both presidents performed ebulliently. Extended communiques were published, they established consultative institutions, dealt with a host of technical issues, and ended the atmosphere of confrontation of nearly a decade. What the relationship lacked was a defining shared purpose, such as had united Beijing and Washington in resistance to Soviet hegemonism. American leaders could not remain oblivious to the various pressures regarding human rights that were generated by their own domestic politics and convictions. The Chinese leaders continued to see American policy as at least partially designed to keep China from reaching great power status. In a 1995 conversation, Li Peng sounded a theme of reassurance, which amounted to calming presumed American fears over what objectives a resurgent China might seek. There is no need for some people to worry about the rapid development. China will take 30 years to catch up with the medium-level countries. Our population is too big. The United States in turn made regular pledges that it had not changed its policy to containment. The implication of both assurances was that each side had the capability of implementing what it reassured the other about and was in part restraining itself. Reassurance thus merged with threat. The Third Taiwan Strait Crisis The tensions surrounding the granting of most favored nation status were in the process of being overcome when the issue of Taiwan reemerged. Within the framework of the tacit bargain undergirding the three communiques on which the normalization of relations had been based, Taiwan had established a vibrant economy and democratic institutions. It had joined the Asian Development Bank and APEC, Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation, and participated in the Olympic Games with Beijing's acquiescence. For its part, Beijing had put forward, beginning in the 1980s, proposals for unification, in which Taiwan was to be given total internal autonomy. So long as Taiwan accepted its status as a special administrative region of the People's Republic, the same legal status that Hong Kong and Macau were to have, Beijing pledged it would be permitted to retain its own distinct political institutions and even its own armed forces. Taipei's reaction to these proposals was circumspect, but it benefited from the People's Republic's economic transformation and became increasingly economically interdependent with it. Following the loosening of restrictions on bilateral trade and investment in the late 1980s, many Taiwanese companies shifted production to the mainland. By the end of 1993, Taiwan had surpassed Japan to become the second largest source of overseas investment in China.
While economic interdependence developed, the two sides' political paths diverged significantly. In 1987, Taiwan's aging leader, Chang Tsingguo, had lifted martial law. A dramatic liberalization of Taiwan's domestic institutions followed. Press restrictions were lifted. Rival political parties were allowed to stand for legislative elections. In 1994, a constitutional amendment laid the groundwork for the direct election of the Taiwanese president by universal suffrage. New voices in Taiwan's political arena that had had their activities circumscribed by the martial law era restrictions now began advocating a distinct Taiwanese national identity and potentially formal independence. Chief among them was Li Tenghui, the mercurial agricultural economist who had worked his way up the ranks of the Nationalist Party and was appointed its chairman in 1988. Li incarnated everything Beijing detested in a Taiwanese official. He had grown up during the Japanese colonization of Taiwan, taken a Japanese name, studied in Japan, and served in the Imperial Japanese Army during World War II. Later, he had received advanced education in the United States at Cornell University. Unlike most Nationalist Party officials, Lee was a native Taiwanese. He was outspoken about regarding himself as a Taiwan person first and a Chinese person second, and was a proud and insistent proponent of Taiwan's distinct institutions and historical experience. As the 1996 election drew near, Lee and his cabinet engaged in a series of acts designed step-by-step step to increase what they described as Taiwan's international living space. To the discomfort of Beijing, and many in Washington, Li and other senior ministers embarked on a course of vacation diplomacy that found large delegations of Taiwanese officials traveling unofficially to world capitals, occasionally during meetings of international organizations, and then maneuvering to be received with as many of the formal trappings of statehood as possible. The Clinton administration attempted to stand apart from these developments, in a November 1993 meeting and press conference with Jiang Zemin in Seattle, on the occasion of an apex summit of nations from both sides of the Pacific, Clinton stated, In our meeting, I reaffirmed the United States' support for the three joint communiques as the bedrock of our One China policy. The policy of the United States on One China is the right policy for the United States. It does not preclude us from following the Taiwan Relations Act, nor does it preclude us from the strong economic relationship we enjoy with Taiwan. There's a representative of Taiwan, as you know, here at this meeting. So I feel good about where we are on that. But I don't think that will be a major stumbling block in our relationship with China. For Clinton's approach to work, Taiwan's leaders needed to exercise restraint. But Li was determined to push the principle of Taiwan's national identity. In 1994, he sought permission to stop in Hawaii to refuel his plane en route to Central America, the first time a Taiwanese president had landed on American soil. Lee's next target was the 1995 reunion at Cornell, where he had obtained his economics Ph.D. in 1958. Vigorously urged by the newly elected Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, Congress voted unanimously in the House and with only one dissenting vote in the Senate to support Lee's visit. Warren Christopher had assured the Chinese foreign minister in April 
that approving Lee's visit would be inconsistent with American policy. But in the face of such formidable pressure, the administration reversed itself and granted the request for a personal and unofficial visit. Once at Cornell, Lee delivered a speech, straining the definition of unofficial. After a brief nod to fond memories of his time at Cornell, Lee launched into a rousing talk on the aspirations of Taiwan's people for formal recognition. Lee's elliptical phrasings, frequent references to his country and nation, and blunt discussion of the imminent demise of communism all exceeded Beijing's tolerance. Beijing recalled its ambassador from Washington, delayed the approval of the American ambassadorial nominee, James Sasser, and canceled other official contacts with the American government. Then, following the script of the Taiwan Strait Crises of the 1950s, Beijing began military exercises and missile tests off the coast of southeast China that were equal parts military deterrent and political theater. In a series of threatening moves, China fired missiles into the Taiwan Strait to demonstrate its military capabilities and to warn Taiwan's leaders. But it used dummy warheads, thus signaling that the launches had a primarily symbolic quality. Quiescence on Taiwan could be maintained only so long as none of the parties challenged the three communiques. For they contained so many ambiguities that an effort by any party to alter the structure or to impose its interpretation of the clauses might upend the entire framework. Beijing had not pressed for the clarification, but once it was challenged, it felt compelled to demonstrate at a minimum how seriously China took the issue. In early July 1995, as the crisis was still gathering momentum, I was in Beijing with a delegation from the America-China Society, a bipartisan group of former high officials dealing with China. On July 4th, we met with then-Vice Premier Qian Jiten and the Chinese Ambassador to the United States, Li Daoyu. Qian laid out the Chinese position. Sovereignty was non-negotiable. Dr. Kissinger, you must be aware that China attaches great importance to Sino-U.S. relations despite our occasional quarrels. We hope to see Sino-U.S. relations restored to normal and improved. But the U.S. government should be clear about the point. We have no maneuver room on the Taiwan question. We will never give up our principled position on Taiwan. Relations with China had reached a point where the weapon of choice of both the United States and China was the suspension of high-level contacts, creating the paradox that both sides were depriving themselves of the mechanism for dealing with the crisis when it was most needed. After the disintegration of the Soviet Union, each side proclaimed friendship with the other, less to pursue a common strategic objective than to find a way to symbolize cooperation, at that moment in defiance of its actuality. The Chinese leaders conveyed shortly after my arrival their desire for a peaceful outcome by one of the subtle gestures at which they are so adept. Before the formal schedule of the America-China Society began, I was invited to give a talk at a secondary school in Tianjin that Zhou Enlai had once attended. Accompanied by a senior foreign ministry official, I was photographed near a statue of Zhou, and the official introducing me used the occasion to recall the heyday of close Sino-American cooperation. 
Another sign that matters would not get out of hand came from Zhang. While the rhetoric on all sides was intense, I asked Zhang whether Mao's statement that China could wait 100 years for Taiwan still stood. No, replied Zhang. When I asked in what way not, Zhang responded the promise was made 23 years ago. Now only 77 years are left. The professed mutual desire to ease tensions ran up, however, against the aftermath of the Tiananmen crisis. There had been no high-level dialogue, nor a ministerial visit since 1989. The only high-level discussion for six years had been at the sidelines of international meetings or at the UN. Paradoxically, in the aftermath of military maneuvers in the Taiwan Strait, the immediate issue resolved itself into a partly procedural problem of how a meeting between leaders could be arranged. Ever since Tiananmen, the Chinese had sought an invitation for a presidential visit to Washington. Both Presidents Bush and Clinton had evaded the prospect. It rankled. The Chinese, too, were refusing high-level contacts until assurances were given to forestall a repetition of the visit to America by the Taiwanese president. Matters were back to the discussions at the end of the secret visit 25 years earlier, which had briefly stalemated over the issue of who was inviting whom, a deadlock broken by a formula by Mao, which could be read as implying that each side had invited the other. A solution of sorts was found when Secretary of State Christopher and the Chinese foreign minister met on the occasion of an ASEAN meeting in Brunei, obviating the need of determining who had made the first move. Secretary Christopher conveyed an assurance, including a still-classified presidential letter defining American intentions regarding visits to America by Taiwanese senior officials and an invitation for a meeting of Zhang with the president. The summit between Zhang and Clinton materialized in October though not in a manner that took full account of China's amour propre. It was not a state visit, nor in Washington. Rather, it was scheduled for New York, in the context of the 50th anniversary celebration of the United Nations. Clinton met with Zhang at Lincoln Center, as part of a series of similar meetings with the most important leaders attending the UN session. A Washington visit by a Chinese president in the aftermath of Chinese military exercises in the Taiwan Strait would have encountered too hostile a reception. In this atmosphere of inconclusive ambivalence, of veiled overtures and tempered withdrawals, Taiwan's parliamentary elections, scheduled for December 2, 1995, raised the temperature again. Beijing began a new round of military exercises off the Fujian coast, with air, naval and ground forces conducting joint maneuvers to simulate an amphibious landing on hostile territory. This was accompanied by an equally aggressive campaign of psychological warfare. The day before the December legislative election, the PLA announced a further round of exercises to take place in March 1996, just prior to the Taiwanese presidential election. As the election approached, missile tests bracketing Taiwan hit points just off key port cities in the islands northeast and southwest. The United States responded with the most significant American show of force directed at China since the 1971 rapprochement, sending two aircraft carrier battle groups with the carrier Nimitz through the Taiwan Strait on the pretext of avoiding bad weather. 
At the same time, walking a narrow passage, Washington assured China that it was not changing its one China policy and warned Taiwan not to engage in provocative acts. Approaching the precipice, both Washington and Beijing recoiled, realizing that they had no war aims over which to fight or terms to impose which would alter the overriding reality, which was, in Madeleine Albright's description, that China is in its own category, too big to ignore, too repressive to embrace, difficult to influence, and very, very proud. For its part, America was too powerful to be coerced and too committed to constructive relations with China to need to be. A superpower America, a dynamic China, a globalized world, and the gradual shift of the center of gravity of world affairs from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific required a peaceful and cooperative relationship. In the wake of the missile crisis, relations between China and the United States improved markedly. As relations began to approach previous highs, yet another crisis shook the relationship as suddenly as a thunderclap at the end of a summer day. During the Kosovo War, at what was otherwise a high point in U.S.-Chinese relations in May 1999, an American B-2 bomber originating in Missouri destroyed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. A firestorm of protests swept over China. Students and the government seemed united in their outrage at what was assumed to be another demonstration of American disrespect for China's sovereignty. Zhang spoke of deliberate provocation. He elaborated with defiance, revealing a latent disquiet. The great People's Republic of China will never be bullied. The great Chinese nation will never be humiliated. And the great Chinese people will never be conquered. As soon as Secretary of State Madeleine Albright was informed, she asked the Deputy Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to accompany her to the Chinese Embassy in Washington though it was the middle of the night, to express the regrets of the U.S. government. Zhang felt obliged by the public mood, however, to express his own outrage, but then to use that expression to restrain his public, a pattern similar to that of American presidents on the human rights issue. Chinese indignation was matched on the American side by arguments that China needed to be faced down. Both viewpoints reflected serious convictions, and illustrated the potential for confrontation in a relationship in which both sides were drawn by the nature of modern foreign policy into tensions with each other around the world. The governments on both sides remained committed to the need for cooperation, but they could not control all the ways the countries impinged on each other. It is the unsolved challenge of Chinese-American relations. China's Resurgence and Zhang's Reflections In the midst of the periodic crises recounted above, the 1990s witnessed a period of stunning economic growth in China, and with it a transformation of the country's broader world role. In the 1980s, China's reform and opening up had remained partly a vision. Its effects were noticeable, but their depth and longevity were open to debate. Within China itself, the direction was still contested. In the wake of Tiananmen, some of the country's academic and political elites advocated an inward turn 
and a scaling back of China's economic links with the West, a trend Deng ultimately felt obliged to challenge through his southern tour. When Zhang assumed national office, a largely unreformed sector of state-owned enterprises on the Soviet model still constituted over 50% of the economy. China's links to the world trade system were tentative and partial. Foreign companies still were skeptical about investing in China. Chinese companies rarely ventured abroad. By the end of the decade, what had once seemed an improbable prospect had become a reality. Throughout the decade, China grew at a rate of no lower than seven percent per year, and often in the double digits, continuing an increase in per capita GDP that ranks as one of the most sustained and powerful in history. By the end of the 1990s, average income was approximately three times what it had been in 1978. In urban areas, the income level rose even more dramatically, to roughly five times the 1978 level. Throughout these changes, China's trade with neighboring countries was burgeoning, and it played an increasingly central regional economic role. It tamed a period of dangerously escalating inflation in the early 1990s, implementing capital controls and a fiscal austerity program that were later credited with sparing China the worst of the Asian financial crisis in 1997-98. Standing for the first time. As a bulwark of economic growth and stability in a time of economic crisis, China found itself in an unaccustomed role. Once the recipient of foreign, often Western, economic policy prescriptions, it was now increasingly an independent proponent of its own solutions and a source of emergency assistance to other economies in crisis. By 2001, China's new status was cemented. With a successful application to host the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, and the conclusion of negotiations, making China a member of the WTO, fueling this transformation was a recalibration of China's domestic political philosophy. Traveling further along the reformist road Deng had first charted, Zhang undertook to broaden the concept of communism by opening it from an exclusive class-based elite. To a wider spectrum of society, he spelled out his philosophy, which became known as the Three Represents, at the 16th Party Congress in 2002, the last Congress he would attend as president on the eve of the first peaceful transfer of power in China's modern history. It laid out why the party that had won support through revolution needed now to represent as well the interests of its former ideological foes, including entrepreneurs. Zhang opened the Communist Party to business leaders, democratizing the internal governance of the Communist Party in what remained a one-party state. Throughout this process, China and the United States were becoming increasingly intertwined economically. At the beginning of the 1990s, the total volume of U.S. trade with mainland China. Was still only half the volume of American trade with Taiwan. By the end of the decade, U.S.-China trade had quadrupled, and Chinese exports to the United States had increased sevenfold. American multinationals viewed China as an essential component of their business strategies, both as a locus of production and as an increasingly monetary market in its own right. China, in turn, was using its increasing cash reserves. 
to invest in U.S. Treasury bonds, and in 2008 would become the largest foreign holder of American debt. In all this, China was surging toward a new world role, with interests in every corner of the globe, and integrated to an unprecedented degree with broader political and economic trends. Two centuries after the first mutually miscomprehending negotiations over trade and diplomatic recognition between McCartney and the Chinese court, there was a recognition in both China and the West that they were arriving at a new stage in their interactions, whether or not they were prepared for the challenges it would pose. As China's then Vice Premier Zhu Rongji observed in 1997, never before in history has China had such frequent exchanges and communications with the rest of the world. In earlier eras, such as McCartney's or even the Cold War era, a Chinese world and a Western world had interacted in limited instances and at a stately pace. Now, modern technology and economic interdependence made it impossible, for better or for worse, to manage relations in such a measured manner. As a result, the two sides confronted a somewhat paradoxical situation, in which they had vastly more opportunities for mutual understanding, but at the same time, new opportunities to impinge on each other's sensitivities. A globalized world had brought them together, but also risked more frequent and rapid exacerbation of tensions in times of crisis. As his period in office moved toward its conclusion, Zhang expressed his recognition of this danger in a personal, almost sentimental way, not generally found in the aloof, conceptual, self-contained manner of the Chinese leadership. The occasion was a meeting in 2001 with some members of the America-China Society. Zhang was in the last year of his 12-year tenure, but already seized by the nostalgia of those who are leaving activity in which, by definition, every action made a difference for a world in which they will soon be largely spectators. He had presided over a turbulent period, which had begun with China substantially isolated internationally, at least among the advanced democratic states, the countries China most needed to implement its reform program. Zhang had surmounted these challenges. Political cooperation with America had been re-established, the reform program was accelerating and producing the extraordinary growth rate that would, within another decade, turn China into a financial and economic global power. A decade that began in turbulence and doubt had turned into a period of extraordinary achievement. In all of China's extravagant history, there was no precedent for how to participate in a global order, whether in concert with or opposition to another superpower. As it turned out, that superpower, the United States, also lacked the experience for such a design, if indeed it had the inclination for it. A new international order was bound to emerge, whether by design or by default. Its nature and the measures for bringing it about were the unsolved challenges for both countries. They would interact either as partners or as adversaries. Their contemporary leaders professed partnership, but neither had yet managed to define it or build shelters against the possible storms ahead.
Now John was encountering a new century and a different generation of American leaders. The United States had a new president, the son of George H.W. Bush, who had been in office when John was elevated so unexpectedly by events no one could have foreseen. The relationship with the new president started with another unsought military clash. On April 1, 2001, an American reconnaissance plane flying along the Chinese coast, just outside Chinese territorial waters, was being tailed by a Chinese military aircraft, which then crashed into it near Hainan Island off China's southern coast. Neither Zhang nor Bush permitted the incident to torpedo the relationship. Two days later, Zhang left on a long-planned trip to South America, signaling that he, as head of the Central Military Commission, did not expect crisis action. Bush expressed regret, not for the reconnaissance flight, but for the death of the Chinese pilot. Some foreboding of the danger of drifting events seems to have been in Zhang's mind during the meeting with America-China Society members, as he meandered on in a seemingly discursive statement quoting classical Chinese poetry, interjecting English phrases, extolling the importance of U.S.-Chinese cooperation. Prolix, as his utterances were, they reflected a hope and a dilemma. The hope that the two countries would find a way to work together to avoid the storms generated by the very dynamism of their societies, and the fear that they might miss their chance to do so. The key theme of Zhang's opening remarks was the importance of the Sino-American relationship. I am not trying to exaggerate our self-importance, but good cooperation between the U.S. and China is important for the world. We will do our best to do that, said in English. This is important for the whole world. But if the whole world was the subject, were any leaders really qualified to deal with it? Zhang pointed out that his education had started with traditional Confucianism on a trajectory that included Western education, then schools in the former Soviet Union. Now he was leading the transition of a country that dealt with all these cultures. China and the United States were confronting an immediate issue, the future of Taiwan. Zhang did not use the familiar rhetoric to which we had become accustomed. Rather, his remarks concerned the internal dynamics of the dialogue and how it might be driven out of control, whatever the intention of the leaders, who might be urged by their publics to actions they would prefer to avoid. The biggest issue between the U.S. and China is the Taiwan issue. For example, we often say peaceful resolution and one country, two systems. Generally speaking, I limit myself to saying these two things, but sometimes I add that we cannot undertake not to use force. Zhang could not avoid, of course, the issue that had caused a deadlock in over 130 meetings between Chinese and American diplomats before the opening to China, or the deliberate ambiguities since. But while China refused to abjure the use of force, because it would imply a limitation of its sovereignty, it had in practice refrained from it for 30 years by the time of the conversation with Zhang. And Zhang had put forward the sacramental language in the gentlest of manners. Zhang did not insist on an immediate change. Rather, he pointed out that the American position contained an anomaly. 
the United States did not support independence for Taiwan? Or, on the other hand, did it promote reunification? The practical consequence was to turn Taiwan into an unsinkable aircraft carrier for America. In such a situation, whatever the intentions of the Chinese government, the convictions of its population might generate their own momentum toward confrontation. In the nearly 12 years I've been in the central government, I've felt very strongly the sentiments of the 1.2 billion Chinese people. Of course, we have the best aspirations toward you, but if a spark flares up, it will be hard to control the emotions of 1.2 billion people. I felt obliged to reply to this threat of force, however regretfully and indirectly formulated. If the discussion concerns use of force, it will strengthen all the forces that want to use Taiwan to harm our relationship. In a military confrontation between the U.S. and China, even those of us who would be heartbroken would be obliged to support our own country. Zhang replied not by repeating the by now traditional invocation of the imperviousness of China to the danger of war. He took the perspective of a world whose future depended on Sino-American cooperation. He spoke of compromise, a word almost never used by Chinese leaders about Taiwan, even when it was practiced. He avoided making either a proposal or a threat, and he was no longer in a position to shape the outcome. He called for a global perspective, precisely what was most needed and what each nation's history made most difficult. It is not clear whether China and the U.S. can find common language and resolve the Taiwan question. I have remarked that if Taiwan were not under U.S. protection, we would have been able to liberate it. Therefore, the question is how we can compromise and get a satisfactory solution. This is the most sensitive part of our relations. I am not suggesting anything here. We are old friends. I do not need to use diplomatic language. In the final analysis, I hope that with Bush in office, our two countries can approach U.S.-China relations from a strategic and global perspective. The Chinese leaders I had previously met had a long-range perspective, but it drew a great deal from lessons of the past. They also were in the process of undertaking great projects with significance for a distant future, but they rarely described the shape of the middle-term future. Assuming that its character would emerge from the vast efforts in which they were involved, Zhang asked for something less dramatic, but perhaps even deeper. At the end of his presidency, he addressed the need to redefine the philosophical framework of each side. Mao had urged ideological rigor, even while making tactical maneuvers. Zhang seemed to be saying that each side should realize that if they were to cooperate genuinely. They needed to understand the modifications they were obliged to make in their traditional attitudes. He urged each side to re-examine its own internal doctrines and be open to reinterpreting them, including socialism. The world should be a rich, colorful, diversified place. For example, in China, in 1978, we made a decision for reform and opening up. In 1992, in the 14th National Congress, I stated that China's development model. Should be in the direction of a socialist market economy. For those who are accustomed to the West, you think the market is nothing strange. But in 1992, to say market here was a big risk. For that reason, Zhang argued that both sides should adapt their ideologies 
to the necessities of their interdependence. Simply put, the West is best advised to set aside its past attitude toward communist countries, and we should stop taking communism in naive or simplistic ways. Deng famously said in his 1992 trip to the South that socialism will take generations, scores of generations. I am an engineer. I calculated that there have been 78 generations from Confucius until now. Deng said socialism will take so long. Deng, I now think, created very good environmental conditions for me. On your point about value systems, East and West must improve mutual understanding. Perhaps I am being a bit naive. The reference to 78 generations was intended to reassure the United States that it should not be alarmed at the rise of a powerful China. It would need that many generations to fulfill itself. But political circumstances in China had certainly changed when a successor of Mao could say communists should stop talking about their ideology in naive and simplistic ways, or speak of the need for a dialogue between the Western world and China over how to adjust their philosophical frameworks to each other. On the American side, the challenge was to find a way through a series of divergent assessments. Was China a partner or an adversary? Was the future cooperation or confrontation? Was the American mission the spread of democracy to China or cooperation with China to bring about a peaceful world? Or was it possible to do both? Both sides have been obliged ever since to overcome their internal ambivalences and to define the ultimate nature of their relationship. Chapter 18 The New Millennium The end of the Jiang Zemin presidency marked a turning point in Sino-American relations. Zhang was the last president with whom the principal subject of the Sino-American dialogue was the relationship itself. After that, both sides merged, if not their convictions, then their practice into a pattern of cooperative coexistence. China and the United States no longer had a common adversary, but neither had they yet developed a joint concept of world order. Zhang's mellow reflections in the long conversation with him, described in the last chapter, illustrated the new reality. The United States and China perceived that they needed each other because both were too large to be dominated, too special to be transformed, and too necessary to each other to be able to afford isolation. Beyond that, were common purposes attainable? And to what end? The millennium was the symbolic beginning of that new relationship. A new generation of leaders had come into office in China and the United States. On the Chinese side, a fourth generation headed by President Hu Jintao and Premier Wen Jiabao. On the American side, administrations led by Presidents George W. Bush and, beginning in 2009, Barack Obama. Both sides had an ambivalent attitude toward the turmoil of the decades that preceded them. Hu and Wen brought an unprecedented perspective to the task of managing China's development and defining its world role. They represented the first generation of top officials without personal experience of the revolution. 
the first leaders in the communist period, to take office through constitutional processes, and the first to assume positions of national responsibility in a China unambiguously emerging as a great power. Both men had direct experience of their country's fragility and its complex domestic challenges. As young cadres during the 1960s, Hu and Wen were among the last students to receive formal higher education before the chaos of the Cultural Revolution closed the universities. Educated at Tsinghua University in Beijing, a hub of Red Guard activity, Hu stayed at the university as a political counselor and research assistant, able to observe the chaos of the warring factions. And on occasion, becoming their target as allegedly too individualistic. When Mao decided to put an end to Red Guard depredations by sending the young generation to the countryside, who nevertheless shared their fate? He was dispatched to Gansu Province, one of China's more desolate and rebellious regions, to work at a hydraulic power plant. One, a recent graduate of the Beijing Institute of Geology, received a similar assignment. And was sent to work on mineralogical projects in Gansu, where he would remain for more than a decade. There, in the far northwestern reaches of their turmoil-stricken country, Hu and Wan undertook a slow climb up the internal ranks of the Communist Party hierarchy. Hu rose to the position of secretary of the Communist Youth League for Gansu Province. Wan became the deputy director of the Provincial Geological Bureau. In an era of upheaval and revolutionary fervor, both men distinguished themselves by their steadiness and competency. For Hu, the next advancement took place at the Central Party School in Beijing, where in 1982 he came to the attention of Hu Yaobang, then General Secretary of the Party. It led to a rapid promotion to the position of Party Secretary for Guizhou, in China's remote southwest. At 43, Hu Jintao was the youngest provincial party secretary in Communist Party history. His experience in Guizhou, a poor province with a substantial number of minorities, prepared Hu for his next assignment in 1988 as party secretary for the autonomous region of Tibet. Wan, meanwhile, was transferred to Beijing, where he served in a series of positions of increasing responsibility in the Communist Party's Central Committee. He established himself as a trusted top aide to three successive Chinese leaders: Hu Yaobang, Zhao Ziyang, and later Jiang Zemin. Both Hu and Wan had close personal experience with China's 1989 unrest. Hu in Tibet, where he arrived in December 1988, just as a major Tibetan uprising was unfolding. Wan in Beijing, where as deputy to Zhao Ziyang, he was at the general secretary's side during his last forlorn expedition. Amongst the students in Tiananmen Square, thus, by the time they assumed the top national leadership posts in 2002-2003, Hu and Wan had gained a distinctive perspective on China's resurgence. Trained in its rugged, unstable frontiers, and serving at a middle level during Tiananmen, they were conscious of the complexity of China's domestic challenges. Coming to power during a long period of sustained domestic growth. And in the wake of China's entry into the international economic order, they assumed the helm of a China undeniably arriving as a world power, with interests in every corner of the globe. Deng had called a truce in the Maoist war on Chinese tradition, 
and allowed the Chinese to reconnect with their historic strengths. But as other Chinese leaders occasionally hinted, the Deng era was an attempt to make up for lost time. There was in this period a sense of special exertion and a subtext of almost innocent embarrassment at China's missteps. Zhang projected unshakable confidence and bonhomie, but he assumed the helm of a China still recovering from domestic crisis and endeavoring to regain its international standing. It was at the turn of the century that the efforts of the Deng and Zhang periods were coming to fruition. Hu and Wan presided over a country that no longer felt constrained by the sense of apprenticeship to Western technology and institutions. The China they governed was confident enough to reject and even on occasion subtly mock American lectures on reform. It was now in a position to conduct its foreign policy not based on its long-term potential or its ultimate strategic role, but in terms of its actual power. Power to what end? Beijing's initial approach to the new era was largely incremental and conservative. Zhang and Zhu had negotiated China's entry into the World Trade Organization and full participation in the international economic order. China, under Hu and Wen, aspired first of all to normalcy and stability. Its goals, in the official formulations, were a harmonious society and a harmonious world. Its domestic agenda centered on continued economic development and the preservation of social harmony within a vast population experiencing both unprecedented prosperity and unaccustomed levels of inequality. Its foreign policy avoided dramatic moves, and its chief policymakers responded circumspectly to appeals from abroad for China to play a more visible international leadership role. China's foreign policy aimed primarily for a peaceful international environment, including good relations with the United States and access to raw materials to ensure continued economic growth. And it retained a special interest in the developing world, a legacy of Mao's three worlds theory, even as it moved into the rank of economic superpower. As Mao had feared, the Chinese DNA had reasserted itself. Confronting the new challenges of the 21st century and in a world where Leninism had collapsed, who and one turned to traditional wisdom. They described their reform aspirations not in terms of the utopian visions of Mao's continuous revolution, but by the goal of building a Xiaokang, moderately well-off society, a term with distinctly Confucian connotations. They oversaw a revival of the study of Confucius in Chinese schools and a celebration of his legacy in popular culture. And they enlisted Confucius as a source of Chinese soft power on the world stage, in the official Confucius Institutes established in cities worldwide, and in the 2008 Beijing Olympics opening ceremony, which featured a contingent of traditional Confucian scholars. In a dramatic, symbolic move, in January 2011, China marked the rehabilitation of the ancient moral philosopher by installing a statue of Confucius at the center of the Chinese capital, Tiananmen Square, within sight of Mao's mausoleum, the only other personality so honored. The new American administration signified a comparable change of generations. Both Hu and Bush were the first presidents who had been bystanders at their nation's traumatic experiences of the 1960s, 
For China, the Cultural Revolution. For the United States, the Vietnam War. Who drew the conclusion that social harmony should be a guideline of his presidency? Bush came into office in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union amidst an American triumphalism that believed America capable of reshaping the world in its image. The younger Bush did not hesitate to conduct foreign policy under the banner of America's deepest values. He spoke passionately about individual liberties and religious freedom, including on his visits to China. Bush's freedom agenda projected what seemed improbably fast evolutions for non-Western societies. Nevertheless, in the practice of his diplomacy, Bush overcame the historic ambivalence between America's missionary and pragmatic approaches. He did so not through a theoretical construct, but by means of a sensible balance of strategic priorities. He left no doubt about America's commitment to democratic institutions and human rights. At the same time, he paid attention to the national security element, without which moral purpose operates in a vacuum. Though criticized in the American debate for his alleged espousal of unilateralism, Bush, in dealing with China, Japan, and India simultaneously, countries that base their policy on national interest calculations, managed to improve relations with each. A model for a constructive Asian policy for the United States. In Bush's presidency, U.S.-China relations were the matter-of-fact dealings of two major powers. Neither side supposed the other shared all of its aims. On some issues, like domestic governance, their goals were not compatible. Still, they found their interests intersecting in enough areas to confirm the emerging sense of partnership. Washington and Beijing inched closer to each other's positions on Taiwan in 2003, after Taiwan's President Chen Shui-bian proposed a referendum on applying for UN representation under the name Taiwan. Since such a move would have been a violation of American undertakings in the three communiques, Bush administration officials conveyed their opposition to Taipei. During Wang Jiabao's December 2003 visit to Washington. Bush reaffirmed the three communiques and added that Washington opposes any unilateral decision by China or Taiwan to change the status quo. He suggested that a referendum raising Taiwan's political status would not find support in the United States. One responded with a notably forthcoming formulation on the desirability of peaceful reunification. Our fundamental policy on the settlement of the question of Taiwan is peaceful reunification and one country, two systems. We would do our utmost, with utmost sincerity, to bring about national unity and peaceful reunification through peaceful means. One of the reasons for renewed cooperation was the attacks of September 11th, which redirected America's primary strategic focus away from East Asia. To the Middle East and Southwest Asia, with wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and a program to combat terrorist networks. China, no longer a revolutionary challenger of the international order, and concerned about the impact of global terrorism within its own minority regions, especially Xinjiang, was quick to condemn the 9/11 attacks and offer intelligence and diplomatic support. In the lead-up to the Iraq War. 
it was notably less confrontational against the United States in the United Nations than some of America's European allies were. On a perhaps more fundamental level, however, the period began a process of divergence in Chinese and American assessments of how to deal with terrorism. China remained an agnostic bystander to the American projection of power across the Muslim world and above all to the Bush administration's proclamation of ambitious goals of democratic transformation. Beijing retained its characteristic willingness to adjust to changes in alignments of power and in the composition of foreign governments without passing a moral judgment. Its main concerns were continued access to oil from the Middle East and after the fall of the Taliban, protection of Chinese investments in Afghanistan's mineral resources. With these interests generally fulfilled, China did not contest American efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan, and may well have welcomed them, in part because they represented a diversion of American military capabilities from East Asia. The range of interaction between China and the United States signified the re-establishment of a central role for China in regional and world affairs. China's quest for equal partnership was no longer the outsized claim of a vulnerable country. It was increasingly a reality backed by financial and economic capacities. At the same time, impelled by new security challenges and changing economic realities, and not least a new alignment of relative political and economic influence between them, both countries were engaged in searching debates about their domestic purposes, their world roles, and, ultimately, their relation to each other. Differences in Perspective As the new century progressed, two trends emerged, in some respects working against each other. On many issues, Sino-American relations evolved in a largely cooperative manner. At the same time, differences rooted in history and geopolitical orientation began to be apparent. Economic issues and the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction are good examples. Economic Issues When China was a minor player in the world economy, the exchange rate for its currency was not an issue. Even during the 1980s and 1990s, it would have seemed improbable that the value of the yuan would become a daily point of dispute in American political debate and media analysis. But China's economic rise and growing U.S.-China economic interdependence turned the once arcane issue into a daily controversy with American frustrations and Chinese suspicions about American intentions expressed in increasingly insistent language. The fundamental difference arises over the concept underlying the two sides' respective currency policies. In the American view, the low value of the yuan, also known as the renminbi, is treated as currency manipulation favoring Chinese companies and, by extension, harming American companies operating in the same general industries. An undervalued yuan is said to contribute to the loss of American jobs, a point of serious political and emotional consequence in an age of incipient American austerity. In the Chinese view, the pursuit of a currency policy that favors domestic manufacturers is not an economic policy so much as an expression of China's need for political stability. Thus, in explaining to an American audience in September 2010 why China would not drastically revalue its currency, Wang Jiabao 
Use social, not financial arguments. You don't know how many Chinese companies would go bankrupt. There would be major disturbances. Only the Chinese premier has such pressure on his shoulders. This is the reality. The United States treats economic issues from the point of view of the requirements of global growth. China considers the political implications, both domestic and international. When America urges China to consume more and export less, it puts forward an economic maxim. But for China, a shrinking export sector means a perhaps significant increase in unemployment, with political consequences. Ironically, from the long-range point of view, were China to adopt the American conventional wisdom, it might reduce its incentives for ties with America. Because it would be less dependent on exports, and foster the development of an Asian bloc, because it would imply enhanced economic ties with neighboring countries. The underlying issue is therefore political, not economic. A concept of mutual benefit rather than recriminations over alleged misconduct must emerge. This makes it important to evolve the concept of coevolution and of Pacific community discussed in the epilogue. Non-proliferation in North Korea. Throughout the Cold War, nuclear weapons were in the possession primarily of the United States and the Soviet Union. For all their ideological and geopolitical hostility, their calculation of risk was essentially parallel, and they possessed the technical means to protect themselves against accident, unauthorized launches, and to a considerable extent, surprise attack. But as nuclear weapons spread, this balance is in jeopardy. The calculation of risk is no longer symmetrical, and technical safeguards against accidental launch or even theft will be much more difficult, if not impossible, to implement, especially for countries without the expertise of the superpowers. As proliferation accelerates, the calculus of deterrence grows increasingly abstract. It becomes ever more difficult to decide who is deterring whom, and by what calculations. Even if it is assumed that new nuclear countries have the same reluctance as the established ones with respect to initiating nuclear hostilities against each other, an extremely dubious judgment, they may use their weapons to protect terrorist or rogue state assaults on the international order. Finally. The experience with the private proliferation network of apparently friendly Pakistan, with North Korea, Libya, and Iran, demonstrates the vast consequences to the international order of the spread of nuclear weapons, even when the proliferating country does not meet the formal criteria of a rogue state. The spread of these weapons into hands not restrained by the historical and political considerations of the major states. Augurs a world of devastation and human loss without precedent, even in our age of genocidal killings. It is ironic that nuclear proliferation in North Korea should emerge on the agenda of the dialogue between Washington and Beijing, for it is over Korea that the United States and the People's Republic of China first encountered each other on the battlefield 60 years ago. In 1950. The just-established People's Republic went to war with the United States, because it saw in a permanent American military presence on its border with Korea a threat to Chinese long-term security. 
Sixty years later, the commitment of North Korea to a military nuclear program has created a new challenge, recreating some of the same geopolitical issues. For the first ten years of North Korea's nuclear program, China took the position that it was a matter for the United States and North Korea to settle between themselves. Because North Korea felt threatened primarily by the United States, so the Chinese argument went, it was chiefly up to the United States to provide it with the requisite sense of security to substitute for nuclear weapons. With the passage of time, it became obvious that nuclear proliferation into North Korea would sooner or later affect China's security. If North Korea were to be accepted as a nuclear power, it is highly likely that Japan and South Korea, and possibly other Asian countries such as Vietnam and Indonesia, would ultimately also join the nuclear club, altering the strategic landscape of Asia. China's leaders oppose such an outcome, but equally, China fears a catastrophic collapse of North Korea. Since that could recreate at its borders the very conditions it fought to prevent 60 years ago, the internal structure of the Korean regime compounds the problem. Though it proclaims itself to be a communist state, its actual authority is in the hands of a single family. In 2011, at this writing, the head of the ruling family is in the process of devolving his power. To a 27-year-old son with no previous experience of even communist management, much less international relations, the possibility of an implosion from unpredictable or unknowable elements is ever present. Affected countries might then feel obliged to protect their vital interests by unilateral measures. By that time, it would be too late or perhaps too complicated to coordinate action. To prevent such an outcome must be an essential part of a Sino-American dialogue, and of the six-party talks involving the United States, China, Russia, Japan, and the two Koreas. How to define strategic opportunity? In the pursuit of dealing with a growing list of issues, Beijing and Washington during the 2000s searched for an overall framework to define their relationship. The effort was symbolized by the inauguration of the U.S.-China Senior Dialogue and the U.S.-China Strategic Economic Dialogue, now merged into one Strategic and Economic Dialogue, during George W. Bush's second term. This was in part an attempt to revitalize the spirit of candid exchange on conceptual issues that prevailed between Washington and Beijing during the 1970s, as described in earlier chapters. In China, the search for an organizing principle for the era took the form of a government-endorsed analysis that the first 20 years of the 21st century represented a distinct strategic opportunity period for China. The concept reflected both a recognition of China's progress and potential for strategic gains, and paradoxically, an apprehension about its continuing vulnerabilities. Hu Jintao gave voice to this theory. At a November 2003 meeting of the Communist Party Central Committee's Political Bureau, where he suggested that a unique convergence of domestic and international trends put China in the position to advance its development by leaps and bounds, opportunity was linked to danger, according to Hu Jintao. Like other rising powers before it, if China lost the opportunity presented, it might become a straggler. 
One affirmed the same assessment in a 2007 article, in which he warned that opportunities are rare and fleeting, and recalled that China had missed an earlier opportunity period because of major mistakes, especially the 10-year catastrophe of the Great Cultural Revolution. The first fifth of the new century was an opportunity period which we must tightly grasp and in which we can get much accomplished. Making good use of this window, when assessed, would be of extreme importance and significance for China's development goals. What did China have the strategic opportunity to accomplish? To the extent the Chinese debate on this question can be said to have had a formal beginning, it may be found in a series of special lectures and study sessions convened by Chinese academics and the country's top leadership between 2003 and 2006. The program concerned the rise and fall of great powers in history, the means of their rise, the causes of their frequent wars, and whether and how a modern great power might rise without recourse to military conflict with the dominant actors in the international system. These lectures were subsequently elaborated into The Rise of Great Powers, a 12-part film series aired on Chinese national television in 2006 and watched by hundreds of millions of viewers. As the scholar David Shambaugh has noted, this may have been a uniquely philosophical moment in the history of great power politics. Few, if any, other major or aspiring powers engage in such self-reflective discourse. What lessons could China draw from these historical precedents? In one of the first and most comprehensive attempts at an answer, Beijing sought to allay foreign apprehensions over its growing power by articulating the proposition of China's peaceful rise. A 2005 foreign affairs article by the influential Chinese policy figure Zheng Bijan served as a quasi-official policy statement. Zheng offered the assurance that China had adopted a strategy to transcend the traditional ways for great powers to emerge. China sought a new international political and economic order, but it was one that can be achieved through incremental reforms and the democratization of international relations. China, Deng wrote, would not follow the path of Germany leading up to World War I or those of Germany and Japan leading up to World War II when these countries violently plundered resources and pursued hegemony. Neither will China follow the path of the great powers vying for global domination during the Cold War. Washington's response was to articulate the concept of China as a responsible stakeholder in the international system, abiding by its norms and limits and shouldering additional responsibilities in line with its rising capabilities. In a 2005 speech at the National Committee on United States-China Relations, Robert Zelig, then Deputy Secretary of State, put forward this American response to Zheng's article. While Chinese leaders may have hesitated to grant the implication that they had ever been an irresponsible stakeholder, Zelig's speech amounted to an invitation to China to become a privileged member and shaper of the international system. Almost concurrently, Hu Jintao delivered a speech at the United Nations General Assembly entitled Build Towards a Harmonious World of Lasting Peace and Common Prosperity on the same theme as Zhang Bijan's article. Hu reaffirmed the importance of the United Nations system as a framework for international security and development 
and outlined what China stands for. While reiterating that China favored the trend toward democratization of world affairs, in practice, of course, a relative diminution of American power in the direction of a multipolar world, who insisted that China would pursue its goals peacefully and within the framework of the UN system. China will, as always, abide by the purposes and principles of the UN Charter, actively participate in international affairs, and fulfill its international obligations, and work with other countries in building towards a new international political and economic order that is fair and rational. The Chinese nation loves peace. China's development, instead of hurting or threatening anyone, can only serve peace, stability, and common prosperity in the world.